Hello, you're listening to Season 1, Episode 7 of the NeuroDescent Podcast. I'm Nick Sukhtarewu, I'm a NeuroDivergent Scholar, and with me is Molly Friesenborg. Hi, y'all. I am Molly. I am a nonprofit professional. I work in space of uh, education, nonprofit management, social justice, um, and I've also had the pleasure of working alongside a lot of mental health professionals throughout my career. And last but not least, I happen to be married to this guy. So, in the first season of our podcast, Molly and I have been exploring the history of demons, demonic possession, and other similar things. You know, how one does. Yep. Right. And the reason why I chose this topic was because I was interested in thinking deeply about how people might have approached what today we call mental health at a time before psychiatry or before the concepts of mental health or mental illness. So to remind our listeners, we're going to do a quick recap of our first six episodes because this is kind of a recap episode. All right, it's my time to shine. I feel yeah. like I'm on my pop quiz moment. Now. Right? Yeah, you're gonna Let's Molly's gonna Molly's gonna give us a recap of each of the episodes. So Molly, right. take it away for the first episode, which was about Hippocrates and the cult of Asclepius. All right. So we started off with the Hippocrasy. Yes, possibly my best contribution to this whole podcast is the term Hippocrasy. We started off talking about Hippocrates, and one of the things they wanted to talk about was also it's not blaming the divine for everything right they had a little bit more of this biomedical um explanation for what was going on with things mm -hmm. the other big piece of this was talking about asclepides temples um i might have pronounced that god's name wrong i probably almost certainly did but what is his name his name is asclepius, asclepius. and they are asclepiad, asclepiad temples. temples there we go so these were hella awesome spas i'm sorry that's not how they describe them but they were where you go, you have great community support, there's activities, then they give you your opium and you get healed by the gods and whatnot, but it's really all about like the time away from regular life and community healing. It was pretty awesome. So that was episode one. Episode two. <laughs> all right, so we moved from talking about ancient Greece to jumping ahead towards the birth of Christianity and Jesus. Um, and we talked about Jesus's exorcisms in particular. And I think what was really worth recapping there is how much of a community-centered approach that Jesus took in dealing with folks who had been deemed mad um, and not only trying to exercise their demons, but also sending them back to the community and saying this is part of what we all do for each other and how we love each other. And um, so there was just, again, that sense of community and that sense of like learning and growing through challenges I feel like kind of there in that initial um episode around how Jesus dealt with demons that brings us to episode three episode three is where we go from Jesus to Jesus's followers and um I don't think anyone will be surprised that not every Jesus follower I would say got the message exactly correct but as we talk about Saint Jerome uh, how many years after Jesus's life about 300 about 300 years um they went they're still in the name of you know jesus trying to do exorcisms on demons however a lot of it became all about control and discipline right so saint jerome was very much about denying all pleasures um i think fair to say self-flagellation and like generally it all being about denial 
as like the path towards healing and purity. Um, I think that's a lot of themes you can still see throughout Christianity that I, for one, did not see in any of Jesus's exorcisms. Yeah. So the exorcisms in St. Jerome's story about his friend St. Hilarion are very different than the ones that... Yeah, like, he's they're... like going to brute force that demon out of you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> there was no like... that. I feel like, you know, Jesus had that deep conversation, right, with the demoniac and like talk... Or wait, did I mix up who's a demoniac? Doesn't matter. Um, but like, you know... The people went away and they had deep conversation and they came back and he had been exercised. And Hilarion's like, I'm going to scream the demon out of you. <laughs> yeah. And I can because of this disciplined lifestyle I lead. <laughs> so big change there in those 300 years. Um, so that was our first three episodes. So then in our fourth episode, we moved on to Marjorie Kemp. This is, again, hundreds of years later. In England now and Marjorie was interesting because a she was first woman we really talked about um, in this all these men dealing with demons um, and Marjorie really focused on her personal journey and not kind of the exorcism of others mm -hmm. um, which was a bit of a change and I think what we really saw there was a lot of a the horrific gender issues of everything um, B, how that, like, I feel like I saw in Marjorie Kemp how, like, the version of Christianity that was more um, in line with St. Jerome than what I heard from the original exorcisms of Jesus was very prominent. And it was very um, um, Marjorie dealing with her inability to, like, be the empty vassal of a woman that she was supposed to be for the men around her. Um, and, you know, in some ways self-advocating, but also really making people angry, um, in her journey to understand like her own demons and what she was going through. A lot of which had to do with marital rape mm. and unwanted children. Yeah. So I, I mean, I would, I would also point out though that, I mean, she does come into contact with people who are more understanding and willing to listen to her. I mean, she has several examples of those folks. Yes, this is true. And also, I just want to say for our listener, it is not often that Nick is like, hey, that was a little more optimistic than you just described it. That's that's not our normal dynamic. Um, so <laughs> after Marjorie Kemp, and we had those three different kind of versions of dealing with demons in Christianity, we switched over to um, some East Asian cultural uh, practices of dealing with demons. So then in episode five we're on now right yep. we jumped to Heian, um which was really cool and we learned about how they um did exorcisms very much in a communal fashion right there was multiple people involved once again gender issues what they put the demon in other women as mediums interesting um but the thing i thought was really cool was how like when they were doing these exorcisms, the whole community was involved. The whole community needed to be focusing and and in part of, of that healing ritual. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. And then, last but not least of our first six episodes, we did Thunder Magic! Which, by far, is the coolest title. Um, and if I was going to exercise demons, I think I would probably go with Thunder Magic, personally. 
And Thunder Magic was a really interesting difference because of the way they almost viewed this, like, bureaucracy of gods they were appealing to. Mm. Um, and the way that they did exorcisms and things were very much about having the right prayer to the right powerful being to heal. Um, and again, just a really different perspective of, like, how that healing happens. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily, like, finding the right god so much as also establishing a relationship. Ooh, that's a really good correction to what I just said. Because I do think, as I started to describe it, I was like, oh, wait, where's the, like, how did the community of healing kind of fit into that one? And I was like, oh, I don't really see it. But you're right. It's because you were supposed to be developing that relationship with the spiritual Mm -hmm. power. And that's where the power to heal derived from. Right. Yeah. So, Molly's Fast and Furious, six episode recap. All right. So... From those six episodes, we've pulled out three themes that we want to talk about more in this recap episode. Um, And these three themes are, one, communal care for madness can be powerful. You didn't hear that at all in my recap. It was kind of, you know, maybe spoiled. (laughs) Two, in order to be effective, care techniques require that we believe. Three, the struggle between medicine and spirituality. So let's get started with that first one, which, as Molly already pointed out, we have definitely made that pretty clear. So care for madness that is communal in nature can be powerful. And um, I think it's fair to say that contemporary Western psychiatry puts not a lot of effort into a communal approach to mental health. I think, you know, a large faction of western psychiatrists might tell me that that's because of privacy laws and um the fact that they're interested in the individual and things like that Um, and i think worth noting that you know we're americans and speaking especially from an american context like that need to be individually individually self-sufficient can't be understated i think and how that plays into this mindset for sure capitalism is also at play here um So our listeners will probably recall that we talked about Michel Foucault uh, several times in these first six episodes. And Foucault seems to go so far as to say that psychiatry has has encouraged us not to engage with the mentally ill at all, or he uses the term mad. Um, So I was inspired by Michel Foucault's uh, work for this podcast, and Um, I was especially interested in his book, Madness and Civilization. So I'm going to have Molly read a quote that we've already talked about before. Um, She's going to give us another reading of it. In the serene world of mental illness, modern man no longer communicates with the madman. For as for common language between mad people and sane people, there's no such thing. Or rather, there's no such thing any longer. The constitution of madness as a mental illness at the end of the 18th century affords the evidence of broken of a broken dialogue the concept of mental illness thrusts into oblivion all those stammered imperfect worlds with words without fixed syntax in which the exchange between madness and reason was made the language of psychiatry which is a monologue of reason about madness has been established only on the basis of such a silence thank you So I interpret that like this. Foucault wants us to pay attention to the way 
that psychiatry has created knowledge of mental illness in a way that compels the modern man he talks about um, not to take mad people seriously, to pay them no mind as they are merely people suffering from brain diseases and thus unworthy of our attention or companionship. Mm. It's interesting, the one episode we didn't mention was our special episode for a podcast carnival mm -hmm. that was all about using chat GPT as mm -hmm. a therapist. And it's funny because it almost seems like that is the ultimate, like, and, you know, ad absurdum end result yeah. of this, right? Because, mm -hmm. like, we literally have developed a bot to monologue to us about madness <laughs> <laughs> that can physically not actually listen to see why they're a stochastic parrot, if you want to understand that statement more. But, like, wow. <laughs> that seems very... Um, yeah, especially... Especially people who are out there touting the idea that ChatGPT and other bots could be replacing could be human replacing therapists. mental health care. Yeah. yeah, it's like, hey, mad people, go talk to a robot. <laughs> wow. Um. So one of the claims that Foucault makes is that if we go back in history, we'll find a different way of talking and thinking about madness and engaging with mad people that existed prior to the rise of Western psychiatry. And I think we can also say that still exists actually, um, but not in the minds of the, the modern man that yeah. Foucault is talking about. And we societally have such a like importance on science that like not only are other things not the modern man, but like they're actively mocked in like every way in every form, right? Even like, people who are, like, half doing and believing them, like, are half mocking them, too. Not not all, obviously. But, like, because we've prioritized science so much over any of those other yeah. mock this, methods. This thing we call science. Yeah. And I want to say, too, like, do I, I mean, I get it. Because I want so badly to just believe, like, someone could just, like, fix my brain chemistry and it'd be over. Like, I get the appeal. <laughs> and that's probably, you know, part of the puzzle, but... Yeah. So, I mean, as an example of this theme, I think you've already kind of talked about Jesus Christ, but I just wanted to reread um, one of the, the quotes that we talked about from there. And actually, I'll have you read it. Um, this is from a, a, a Christian theologian named Andres van Erde talking about Jesus Christ's healing. And so this is, a, I think, a good example of the sort of communal approach to healing that Jesus took. Or it's a good summary of it. The deeds of the liberating Jesus can today, in the context of modern society, be defined as empowerment healings. Jesus empowered people who succumbed to stress and enabled them to survive. He brought a renewed sense of meaning to people's lives. Jesus's healings were not miracles in the sense that they were supernatural interventions in the physical world. They signified God's engagement with the social world and the lives of people. A miracle is not God's periodic interference in the closed natural order. It is rather the permanent, hidden, uninterrupted heartbeat of the natural. It is present for those with eyes and ears of faith. That's beautiful. Like, that's the kind of thing that like, yeah, I wanna sign up for that, right? <laughs> that is not what St. Jerome said, for the record. That is not, not what St. Jerome said. So Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and 
since then a lot has changed, as Foucault tells us. Um, many people today would find this approach to care for mental illness to be unscientific, not rigorous, woo-woo, whatever, whatever phrase we might use for it. Um, and so it has very little place in many of our lives. Um, so I think it's worth kind of unpacking this idea of the modern man. Um, so when Foucault talks about the modern man, we can fairly assume that what he really has in mind are the men who were his own contemporaries. So men living in European cities in the 20th century, the 1900s. And Foucault probably has more affluent and formally educated men in mind. And more specifically, when was this written? 1960s. Got it. Thank you. 1950s and 60s. Um, so, it, because Foucault is taught, I mean, Foucault is very purposefully talking about this privileged perspective, mm -hmm. right? But I want to bring in a different perspective and, and put it next to Foucault. And that's... Um, an indigenous perspective in particular, several indigenous perspectives. So um, I think indigenous perspectives are especially fruitful to look at here in this, this context because indigenous people have long resisted colonization, including by psych psychiatric institutions. And in many cases, they actually maintain centuries old traditions of care for mental health that survived well beyond the point that Foucault identifies as the end of these practices, at least for the modern man in Europe. So I want to read from an article by an indigenous therapist named Liel Dupuis Rossi. The article is titled, The Violence of Colonization and the Importance of Decolonizing the Therapeutic Relationship, The Role of Helper in Centering Indigenous Wisdom. So this author contends that modern psychiatry pathologizes people and their mental distress, uh, particularly focusing on indigenous people. And they write, within the mainstream health system, colonial violence is obscured. And rather than acknowledging its negative effect on indigenous nations across Turtle Island, mainstream mental health systems locate the problem or pathology within indigenous individuals, families, and communities. Thousands of years of peaceful coexistence on these lands are rendered invisible. 500 years of indigenous resistance to colonial violence is ignored. In the eyes of the mainstream mental health system, the indigenous client is identified as the problem and their behavior is labeled by way of diagnosis. To many mainstream therapists, this is a normal process. To indigenous clients, it is yet another process that normalizes the enactment of colonial power on our hearts and minds. So later in the article, uh, Dupuy Rossi explains a communal approach to combating the effects of colonial violence on their clients. So uh, here's what they write. Creating a circle of care around indigenous clients is the best medicine. Drum groups, time with elders, healing circles, and safe ceremonies can help our people feel connected to culture and to a positive sense of their indigenous identities. Healthy, safe connection is in and of itself stabilizing on a very deep and profound level. Indigenous clients are an integral part of the indigenous circle. They are our relatives. They are loved and valued. Let them know this. It reminds me so much when you were described in, in that quote, describing like the different ways we can surround folks with community. It definitely made me think of the Asclepides temples, right? And that sense of like, 
the right sense would be to go to a place where you can be surrounded by all these intentional ways of making you feel connected and belonging, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, except for even better when it's not like a timeout temple, but it's your everyday life. That's true, yeah. <laughs> so the thing, I mean, you already mentioned it, but I think it bears peeling apart a little bit is how much capitalism um, is at the root of some of what this looks like with modern man too. Because like when we talk about um, Foucault, I feel like he's really talking about the influence of like science, right? As like what's driving this. But when I, so much of what I hear, I just, you know, for all the mental health professionals I've known, I feel the need to say like, these aren't things that they aren't at least in some ways aware of, right? These aren't right. things that they wouldn't want to promote. Yeah. And that's where I think the role of capitalism can't be understated in the sense right. of like, it's not like a therapist isn't like, what's your community of support? That's really important. How's it around you? But sure. like, that's not something they can actually do much about in the 45 minutes they might have with you. And I don't think there's many therapists that wouldn't want to spend more time with a client sure. if it weren't for insurance and that they're overbooked and overscheduled and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of which is a function of money. Right. Mm. And so I just think it's, um, I just think that's really can't be understated too. And how much like part of that current state of like mental health care is like the scientific need for these like diagnoses and for not listening to the modern man, but also like, I don't know the, the term modern man's falling off my tongue too easily now in a gendered way that I'm not really comfortable with, but anyways, moving on. Um, but that, that they are in a system that cripples their ability to do that too. And I just feel like, you know, yeah. That's really important because there's so many mental health care professionals that do understand the right. sense of belonging and community and still feel completely in a bit unable to like enact that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's even true in like beyond mental health, directly mental health care, like thinking about the work I've done as in youth development, right? We mm -hmm. know that that sense of belonging and community is vital. Right. And that's like a huge part of everything, you know my youth programs have always been trying to do as well. And it's one of the hardest parts to like quantify and to get funding for ah, because yes. it doesn't have as exact of outcomes as learned X, Y, Z. Mm. Right. Yep. And so like, I just really need that. To, yeah. I just need to state how much of part of the picture all that is because like not all humans are dumb. Like, we do not know that that's part of what we need. And yet there's these huge systems working against us. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, so let's move on to our second theme, though, uh, which is in many ways it's re related to this first one. But our second theme is that many apparently effective treatments for mental health require us to believe in the treatments or in other supernatural or what we might call supernatural phenomena um, in order for them to have effect, in order for them to be maximally effective, we have to come to them with a sense of, well, with an open mind, I guess, not without dismissing them as, as uh, a farce or something. Yeah. And I would even, I mean, even that's like the barest, barest minimum that's still a long ways from like, truly believing and right. like being fully invested in whatever that would look like. Yeah, so I mean I'm thinking especially about Heian and the the exorcisms that took place in mm -hmm. Heian. I mean if you think about uh 
what's going on there. The benefit if so so the exorcist sends the possessing demon into a medium who speaks for the demon and you know both the patient possibly and also other people who are present so maybe the patient's family and other people friends things like that they get to hear from the medium what the, the possessing demon is apparently doing or thinking or feeling and um, you can see here that that so much belief is required for this to be at all effective right the the patient has to believe that that they are in fact possessed by a demon that this exorcist has the ability to, to pull the demon out the exorcist and medium perhaps have to have some degree of belief in all of this and certainly all the people who are watching it need to have a belief that that what they're hearing out of this medium's mouth is relevant to the patient's yeah. ordeal. So the benefits of this treatment require this belief in uh, demons, in exorcism, in some in things we might call today supernatural. Yeah. Foucault's modern man definitely doesn't believe in those things, though, mm. right? Which makes this exorcism seem silly, silly right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to. And, and, you know, we've been in this episode bringing up indigenous perspectives, and I want to do that again. Um, this time I want to read it from an article by poet and writer Allison Hedge Coke. This article is called Miracle Madness. In the article, Hedge Coke explains that in traditional indigenous households, people respond with care and fascination to the mad people in their lives. Um, and here's how she describes how an indigenous family or, or a community uh, would traditionally approach mad people. The afflicted person exists in the otherworldly, and we, in the worldly, have little to say in the matter of the other side. Unless someone or something has created this wrongly, the person is going through what the person is to go through mm. in this time and place. It is their way in the world, and their nature to do so, their purpose. Some good is thought to come from this, as the person can also be privy to omen, to prophecy, to seeing things in ways others cannot, and then can help others with that sensibility or knowledge. Though it may prove difficult to find sensibility in sincerely mad ramblings, knowing that there is purpose oftentimes backed with a story that asserts its need, the family is compelled to support the person, to avoid abandonment of the afflicted person and to see the specialness of the state as sacredness potentially powerful or in the very least reasonable in a life thus unquestionable so it has been and will be despite the dominant intrusion and yet the intrusion has had its impact that's really profound i mean to be like a to see like that it might actually give you special skills, right? Mm -hmm. Or at very least you are acting reasonable based on what right. you're going through. And that like, I mean, I feel like there's such a sense with modern like mental health that it's, there's so much shame because A, the stigma, but B, because it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, yeah, it's your fault. Like you should be able to just suck it up and deal and bootstrap your way through this. Mm -hmm. And and so that sense that like this is purposeful and that this is, you know, for better for worse at very least a journey you need to go through. It's really, wow. I mean, and it 
Hedge Coke, the the writer, makes this particular point that dominant society, so people like you and me, um, we could actually learn quite a bit from this practice. And uh, she writes, in traditional indigenous communities, mercy for the afflicted, coupled with attention to the sacred or miraculous, generates compassion and creates a space for coping. Mm. Um, and she points out that, that we could definitely benefit from this. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think that's where it really kind of combines our, our first two themes together, right? That like this shared wonder, this shared belief in or, or shared respect for the possibility of, of otherworldliness, um, it may, it, it cements the community care, I think. Yeah. Cause it ways. gives you all like a stake in it in the sense that like this is this is all part of this journey as opposed to like oh that guy went wrong <laughs> cut it out <laughs> which i i think you know raises questions like where did our sense of wonder go mm. um i mean it's we've yeah it was i think you said the word just approach it with a sense of fascination like that feels really novel yeah to our current sense of and and when you think about like uh, the fact that we're so supposedly influenced by Jesus Christ and Christianity here in, in the West, um, you know, where did that go? Since Foucault is saying it, it no longer is part of our culture. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that brings me to our final theme, which is the struggle between medicine and spirituality. Mm. Um, so we talked about the essay on the sacred disease Hippocrapasi time! Yeah, it's it's authored by the Hippocrapasi, so it's thought to be written either by Hippocrates or one of his fellow physicians. And um, the essay critiques the author's contemporaries who claimed that what we today call epilepsy was caused by the gods. So here's here's a snippet of the author of the On the Sacred Disease slam dunking on... <laughs> Uh, on these pe on his uh, his intellectual competitors. So he writes, they who first referred this malady to the gods appear to me to have been just such persons as the conjurers, purificators, mountebanks, and charlatans now are, who give themselves out for being as excessively religious and as knowing more than other people. Such persons, then, using the divinity as a pretext and screen of their own ability to afford any assistance, have given out <laughs> that the disease is sacred. Some just excellent ancient shade right It there. really is. Excellent, excellent ancient, ancient shade. shade. I think what's interesting is, like, it's, it's funny how much just comes back to the community over and over again. Because, like, in a lot of ways, this is actually trying to argue for science as a way of almost like not stigmatizing and excommunicating and that's the word excommunicating like these people from the community right like mm. they aren't damned by god they got yeah. a medical problem we can help like right which is it's funny because like that feels really positive right True. and yet at the extreme end of that it's like don't worry about that human. We just need to fix their chemistry. It is not, you know. So, like, in, in some ways, like, this this appeal to, like, 
biomedical rationale is is really helpful in that sense of like community and belonging whereas it also can be as you know Foucault points out totally any alienating right yeah yeah I, I mean it's I almost think... like life is all about balance <laughs> and we have to understand the context and I, I think that you know this this essay is often interpreted as expressing the same kind of perspective that modern neuroscience might might express um but i i think it's i think it's hard to really expect that that to be that to be the author's point um or the or for the author to align themselves with that kind of thing because i think we have to keep in mind that the hypocrisy were or thought of themselves as serving the god of asclepius yeah and it's not it was never it doesn't feel separated in right. that time period as it does now and and i think also i mean you've already kind of put your finger on this that like they are they're potentially saying in this essay that that the gods didn't cause the disease but that's not the same thing as saying the gods don't exist or that the gods don't have a role in healing yeah they very well may still send their patient to a an asclepian temple for healing to go check in with the god asclepius and ask for his opinion about what to do and yet like that you know when i think about like the not being listened to like this was actually an appeal to listen to those folks true and um and you know see more in episode one but like in most cases that's not the pragmatic use of this argument in yeah. modern society um but so you know these this struggle between medicine and spirituality it continues on and and it becomes it gets intensified i think with christianity because christianity uh, or christian writers actually respond directly or both indirectly and directly to um, the Asclepiad temples. We and, are petty species. And to the On the Sacred Disease essay. Um, you might recall from episode two that the writer of gospel, the writer of the Gospel of Mark sought to portray Jesus as a healer who was superior to Asclepius. So as you might recall from episode two, the writer of the Gospel of Mark sought to portray Jesus as a healer uh, who was superior to Asclepius. Uh, let me read something that scholar of religion Francis Flannery wrote about the Gospels. Um, so she writes, The writers of the Gospels intentionally constructed the figure of Jesus as healer and divine doctor by contesting the reputation of Asclepius. The Gospels established that, unlike Asclepius, only Jesus can routinely heal the sick and raise even the dead as if they were sleeping without attachment to a physical place, without fees, and regardless of purity boundaries. It just feels like such petty human BS. <laughs> and then you might also, you then remember, I mean, it gets even more petty with St. Jerome. Yeah, who... no, that's all totally off the ledge. <laughs> but even this is just like, all of the stuff you just said, like, I don't think Jesus would have cared to say any of that. Uh, setting himself as superior really kind of wasn't his jam from what I've gotten. It's kind of a whole we're all equal thing going on there. 
I mean, I think he still wanted to be seen as Yeah, a and I get, I mean, like, dealer. again, it's so nuanced, because I'm like, well, yeah, like, I also like to make persuasive arguments about what I think is the proper <laughs> way to do things. But, like... I don't, I don't <laughs> think that in saying this, that Francis Glannery is trying to suggest that, that the Gospel of Mark writer is, like... No, but I can see where this need to set apart and be superior is also where St. Jerome comes from. Well, St. Jerome then, you know, his his portrayal of Hippocrates and other physicians is actually really negative. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to bring up... Well, I guess that's my point. Isn't that starting here when they're... I want to bring up an example from his biography of St. Hilarion. Um, so Jerome tells a story of Hilarion healing a blind woman. And this woman had sought care from physicians. And so Hilarion in this story says to her... If you had given to the poor what you have wasted on physicians, the true physician Jesus would have cured you. He then spat in the woman's face and healed her. Yeah, I just really don't like him. <laughs> I really, like, he's not a good dude. I raised this to give us some sense of the way in which the, uh, the struggle, especially between Christianity and medicine, has played out. There's been a struggle to have Christianity's healing be seen as legitimate against the backdrop of medicine, especially as it has grown more and more powerful uh, in the West. Yeah. So I, you know, there's there's definitely an ongoing conflict between medicine on the one hand and spirituality, and especially Christianity on the other hand, and we're going to see that more in our next episodes as we look more at the develop, you know, the the coalescing of medicine as a profession yeah. in Europe. Um, and But I also want to talk about the some of what we've already seen of the coalescing of a, of a medical field in, in China. Mm. So we have talked about thunder magic in China. And I, I think that the, the Chinese example is interesting to look at with this struggle between medicine and spirituality. Because I think it appears to be less of a conflict in that context. Okay. Um, so so I, I guess we don't see as strong of a rejection of spirituality within this emerging medical tradition, what we often call traditional Chinese medicine today. Mm -hmm. um, and so what is often said is that Taoist knowledge and Taoist practice is very integral to what is thought of as traditional Chinese medicine. Historian Michael Stanley Baker explains that throughout history, Chinese imperial medical texts have distanced themselves from, from spiritual practices like those used by the thunder magic ritual spe specialists. Um, so they have distanced themselves. So the, 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 the separation is somewhat clear. Nonetheless, Stanley Baker argues that these medical writers never fully rejected the spirit realm. In fact, he suggests that they sought to incorporate some of the spiritual healing techniques into their practices. For example, according to Stanley Baker, the Song Dynasty Medical Academy incorporated the ritual practice of performing incantations to the cause of the disease uh, into their practices. Indeed, spells and incantations had their own division within the Song Dynasty Medical Academy. 
So it just gets me excited for where we're going next with the podcast because I feel like I'm already thinking of the ways that Western culture like intentionally knocked down the demons. The well, <laughs> the, the demons or the women uh, <laughs> who were maybe having more holistic, like integrated practices. Mm. And um, it's funny because I keep wanting to like harp on. I feel like there's so much gender issues running through here that aren't getting enough play. Um, in, in terms of especially how we've looked at like the history of, of these healing practices in, in Christian faith at least and or Christian tradition whatever Western cultureness that we're gonna name that um, and so I feel like there's fascinating examples of ways that Western people were creating more holistic integrated healing practices that were intentionally demonized and vilified Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. leading yeah. to that even greater separation so i think that's where we're going with our next episodes. that is that is where we're going um, we're so gonna I'm start. excited for that we are gonna we're gonna see how this conflict between medicine and spirituality develops especially starting in like the 15th century so the 1400s the 1500s 1600s 1700s this is the time period that michelle foucault is very interested in too yeah so our next episode episode eight is going to focus on the European panic about mm. witches and witchcraft that took place in the medieval period and continued on into later centuries. And we're going to explore what ideas about the mind and mental illness are actually revealed when we look at um, that panic and that that discussion about witches. And, and in particular, we're going to look at one late medieval European text that talks about witches extensively. Yay! I'm really looking forward to that. Um, everything I've ever learned or read about, like, the societal construction of what a witch is, is just some fascinating sexist insanity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think that's going to reveal a lot about this divide, how it mm -hmm. furthered, how it plays into the still horrific gendered state of healthcare. Right. Um, and that's going to be some good, if not depressing stuff. All right. Well, then, in the meantime, I hope that our listeners will check out our website at neurodescent.com, uh, where they can find the information on the sources that I just shared in this episode. Also, please subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're using. And uh, can't wait to talk to you about witches for Halloween. All right. Until next time. <laughs>